Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. Today is the 27th of the 1st, another day, another podcast, another Italian government crumbles into the dust. Michael, how have you been? Well, not great, but better than the Italian government, it would appear. I wanted to open this podcast by telling those of you who were kind enough to not tell me that there was an issue with the other upload that we put up on Sunday uh, that cut it to 37 minutes for some of you, I have now fixed that problem, so some of you should stop listening to this and go back and listen to that one to ensure you are up to date. Go away now. Yeah, we're we're a little bit like a soap opera, Gary. If you don't know what happened to the last episode, this episode just won't make any sense. I thought thought our best arc was the crisis pregnancy arc. (laughs) I liked the earthquake. But that's what we're about here, Michael. That's what you're about. I am about the cool deductive rule of logic and rationality you know and you know like 15 minute digressions about philosophers that no one knows about and if they did know about they wouldn't care all you and you know it anyway let's get cracking into it first just a a little note we were told that by now we would have daily vaccination numbers going up on the government's dashboard to the surprise of Stephen Donnelly, that still hasn't happened. It's a really small thing, but I just want to add it to the pile of failure. (laughs) Taking the flame and just putting it with the rest of the fire so you know where it should be. And perhaps take a second to think that if these people can't update a dashboard to display a number once a day, can they be trusted to handle a nationwide and quite complex vaccine rollout? I'm just saying it seems like the entire apparatus of government should be able to update a website. Yeah, the, the, was it a promise, was it a hope? The minister sent a memo uh, to TDs in the middle of January, so I suppose about a week and a half ago, saying that the information would be updated daily on the data hub from the 25th. Now, it's only the 27th, so, you know, a day here, a day there. You say, can we trust them? Well, no, obviously we can't. But the problem is we can't trust the European Union either. The chances are we're unlikely to get Israel to come in and do it for us. So I have a proposal, Gary. Let's get little to do it. Amazon were also an option. I did see some talk in um, weeks and weeks ago, Michael, we were saying that, you know, if England ended up with a couple extra vaccines, yes. maybe we should uh, discreetly ask them for them. And uh, we may have some listeners in England, or apparently this may be what's called convergent development, mm-hmm. uh, because some of the English have started saying we might have some excess vaccines Uh, we should consider giving them to Ireland because of, you know, our long historical links to the country. And I have been really interested every time I've seen a British public figure bring this up, and a couple have brought it up now, because the response from the general English public has been um, pointed. Things like those people who tried to fuck us with Brexit, things like that, terms like that have been getting thrown around quite a lot. Almost as if (laughs) actions, Michael, have have consequences. consequences. Oh, with your actions and consequences, it's a fixation with you. um, Now, to be fair, uh, in that little tick of mine, quite a few of the people, if you're looking at this on social media, quite a few people are saying, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yes, for all sorts of, you know, neighbourly and fraternal reasons. And... As we, everybody says when they're desperately trying to find some euphemism that hasn't been beaten to death, we have a complicated relationship within these islands. 
But you know what? They know us better than anybody else, and we know them better than we than anybody else. We, this is very much like a, to, this is a family dispute at some fundamental. Even if a lot of Irish people hate the notion that we are, we are. I mean, there are millions of people, the Irish people, born Irish people, even still living in the United Kingdom, and the number of English people who have an Irish grandparent or great grandparent is on Scottish Welsh people. So there is a. There is a, there is a connectivity. Other people, other people are just pre speaking practically. Gary, they say, well, this is the only country we actually have a land border with, and we really need just if we're going to be practical or sensible about it, we need some kind of a, an all island, all islands solution to this. We have a common travel area. Britain seems to be going down the line of a, a harder policy regarding incoming traffic. Uh, international traffic uh, with quarantines and stuff so that yeah, that needs to be sorted but yeah it is absolutely true that there is a proportion of people saying oh you mean the people that kept interfering all the way through Brexit are the people who kept sniping and being on help from the sidelines now Gary you know what they're not wrong they are absolutely not wrong I do remember Michael during the entire Brexit process we were doing podcasts and we would just kept doing things the government of the Irish government kept doing things, and we would week after week comment on how these things didn't really seem to make any sense, but were just making it more difficult for the British. Like things like negotiating a deal, and then we would come out, Leo would come out himself, and say, Well, we gave the British nothing hours before it would go to a vote in the Commons. Yeah, that's that's not like. That's that's not even that's not that's not an exaggeration. That's not, at least one occasion I vividly remember Theresa May, who's struggling desperately to try and get thing get get her her troops in line, was going forward with yet another vote in the House of Commons, and Veradker came out and made a statement which just took the legs away from her, and it was to no point, to absolutely no point whatsoever, except make it impossible for her to stand up in front of the her, the rebels in the House of Commons or people opposed to her who then shout about, well, the, 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 the Irish Prime Minister says differently. You know, it was bizarre. And they did it again and again. And we kept saying, why are you doing this, lads? It was like they had a compulsion to constantly poke at it. You didn't have to come out and say they were great. You just had to not say anything. Yeah, just shut up. Or until after the vote. So that, um, it was it was like he thought they didn't have newspapers in England, or that no one paid attention to the Irish. And a lot of the time, the English don't pay attention to the Irish, but they do when it's important, such as then. And also, in, fair, in this kind of thing, people were making sure they were paying attention. There were people who were very committed to making sure they were going to pay attention to any little thing that they could use to beat them over the head with. And... As we kept saying, you know, it's these are our biggest trading partners. They are most important. We have the the closest, most important political relationship with them. We have the we we do actually still have issues regarding how to sort out the prop the future development of the relationship on this island between the north and the south, and that is going to involve London and Westminster. But anyway, there we are. AstraZeneca, the United Kingdom has no problems with supplies of AstraZeneca. We uh, we do. They are coming close to the point that very shortly they will have vaccinated pretty well all of their vulnerable population. And there are a number of people saying, you know what, the Irish are in a position where they are 
trapped in the maw of the European incompetence. Let's give them a dig out. It'll be useful diplomatically. It's a good use of soft power. Why wouldn't we do it? It'll be it'll be useful for us to have a friend. It might be remembered in the future when we need a friendly voice at the table in Europe when we're doing some kind of negotiation. Now, I would like to think that we could be that friendly voice for them because God knows they stood in front of us more than one more than on more than one occasion and did what we wanted to do but were too frightened to say it because we didn't want to be the bad boys that we might be indeed grateful to them but you know yeah i do remember at the time that we were saying that you know to the greatest extent possible we should be trying to help england achieve some of its aims because in many of those cases their aims helped us even during brexit ensuring britain got a solid deal on brexit helped us. Yeah, and there was a sort of, but we've got the EU. Why would we ever need help from the British? And now look at us. Uh, but you know, Michael, when we were when we were reaping or when we were sowing, we were like, "This is so much fun." Fintan O'Toole articles coming from the left and the right about how Britain is a failed state, and now we're sowing or now we're reaping, and it's um, it's kind of shit. It is. It is kind of shit. But you know, we will hope that our, our, our friends and cousins across the water will, indeed. Do you know what, though? Are you absolutely certain that if an offer was made by Westminster to the government here to give them X number of vaccines or to set up uh, large-scale vaccination centres along the border that people who, anybody who wanted from the South could go along to, but whatever the way the mechanism they use, but it, are you sure the Irish government will even accept it? Uh, politically, it's it's quite hard not to accept it. But actually, actually, maybe no, it's not. Maybe people are like, no, we've got to do with the EU. This is you know, this keeps the EU keeps going ahead, and the British are just trying to do something because perfidious Albion. And uh, I don't know. Maybe they would be able to refuse it quite easily. But I'm not. I'm not sure they would say yes. I think there would be people who would think like that. Me, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't. What their motives were would be of a matter of supreme indifference to me. You'd have someone there saying, no, we've got to protect the integrity of the European project. That's what this is all is about. There would be some gobshite, guarantee you, probably writing one or two opinion pieces in the Irish Times, God bless it, who would use that wonderful phrase, Euro solidarity. We have to display solidarity with Europe. Yeah, actually, if you all people die, well, you know, well, you can't make an omelette without breaking old people. Well, I mean, people complain about people dying, Michael, but is there anything more equal than death? Very little. It's why I, I don't really understand, you know, when the Marxists and socialists have this big push to get it done immediately. I'm like, lads, everyone is going to die, and then we're all going to be equal anyway. <laughs> we should... Like, you're going to get your way in the end. Just, like, relax a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Cool the brakes. Well, if anything, affordable healthcare is going against where you should be aiming. <laughs> it's, that's certainly one way of looking at it. It's a view. It's a view. It is. A, it is an opinion. So I wanted to. Um, I wanted to go into the, the back and forth on the AstraZeneca in, in a bit. What's happening with it, and also who's briefing and what the hell is happening with it. Yeah. But I before we get onto that, I did just want to um, mention Bertie has come out of his his closet. <laughs> well, well, he, well, he's um, he's no longer in the Caribbean running like referendums. 
or Turkey. I suppose it's harder to travel these days. So he he so he turns up at a a Finifal meeting. I'd heard that he was m- scheduled to be at one of these meetings. I wasn't sure what the topic of it was. I'm not sure the topic of it actually matters at all. And it's more about here is Bertie Ahern speaking to a meeting of Finifal members and TDs. Mm. A situation which I can only imagine Michal Martin is deeply overjoyed by. Yes. Particularly when you see... Well, a number of things. Was it, yeah, I think he was at a speaking... I imagine to a conference rather than at a conference in Kerry. Because I imagine all these things are being done remotely now. Certainly this meeting was done online. He was talking about, uh, you know, referendums in the North and stuff. And that's all very, So I think theoretically he was speaking about uh, the um, that the idea that there would be a referendum in the next 10 years or so. But one of the things he said, I think, Tony, I think in Kerry was that uh, how do you put it? The subject of a Sinn Féin Fianna Fáil coalition would be discussed, would be a, an object of discussion or a subject for discussion after the next election. Now, it's curious, solely because, I mean, maybe it's just a statement of fact, because maybe it is going to be. Michal Martin has explicitly ex- excluded the possibility of Fianna Fáil going into government with Sinn Féin. And we know that there are TDs in Fianna Fáil who are not happy with the the black and white nature of that position and don't see why we should be so committed as one said to why should we why are we so married to the idea of going in with the blue shirts but we're going to keep the 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 chinners at a distance with a pointy stick that seems to be a position that a number of them seem to be uh worried about and at this uh i don't think we need to name them i I think you can probably find them online if you're interested dear listener the TDs that were along at this online thing, they weren't what you'd call Michal Martin loyalists. No, it is it is odd, because obviously this is an entirely innocent gathering of party members, that incidentally nearly every TD who would wish Michal Martin would float away into the sea yes. uh, somehow found themselves at. And quite a lot of them now, actually. Yeah, because we all know in getting getting a TD to go on to any of these things and listen to people talk is hard at the best of times. But there they were, listening to the wise words of the leader, the former leaders, I should say. Also, it's interesting, it, this is a, it's a grassroots organisation. I think it was set up in Donegal um, by people in the party who don't feel that necessarily the direction the party has been taking is an authentic expression of what Fianna Fáil is or should be. You mean Fianna Fáil used to be popular and capable of holding power, and now it somehow holds power while watching that drip away from them, uh, poll by poll? Well, indeed. Uh, when you have people claiming success in the poll when they're at the same level that they were after the after the uh, what, the 2011 election? So are you implying that these people may look to Ahern as being someone who could refer back to their proud tradition of winning elections and actually being popular. Well, the man that won three elections also maybe the sense that Bertie was the man who got the people to vote for Fianna Fáil in Dublin, who seemed to be precisely the people that the Shinners are getting. And Fianna Fáil seems to be not speaking to at all. And there, there is a, there is a, a feeling within Fianna Fáil that the direction the party has taken has become this obsession with D2, D4 and D6. 
and that the number of votes that Fianna Fáil is going to get in those in those areas, shall we say, in that mind space, is never going to be more than a bucketful anyway. So why the hell are you there? Go where there are votes. That's what they used to always say. If you want to make, if you want to marry money, go where money is. If you want to get votes, go where votes are. And this is not a place. It seems to many in Fianna Fáil that their votes are. So, and Bertie was a man who knew where the votes were. So maybe he. They think it would be useful to listen to Bertie. Bertie, I think, I don't know, Is Bertie has not been readmitted to the party, has he? No, Martin has, uh, I'm not sure if Martin has stopped reapplication, or Martin has simply said he would not allow mm. reapplication while he is leader. Which is sort of giving a, a time limit to that and a target to a, a man who really doesn't need a target. <laughs> listen... Uh, I can't remember the, 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 what, what, what it's from, but this is a, a, an English movie or, or, or TV series where um, one of the characters re- remarks, I would be very nervous when I heard this was happening. This is a man who was definitely on manoeuvres. And we all remember the famous quote from Charlie who, referring to Bertie. He said, Bertie, what was it? He's the cutest and most ruthless of them all. Well, if I was Michal Martin, and I thought that Bertie was on manoeuvres, and he very much is giving the impression of being a man on manoeuvres. I would, I'd be feeling a little bit nervous. Also, let's face it, Michal Martin has been leader of the party for a long time. But Michael, it, he's achieved so much. He has achieved so very, very much. It's difficult to think about what those achievements are in, I mean, concrete policy terms. Uh, uh, no, but Gary, come on. Smoking van. No, Fianna Fáil never, never looked at the world uh, for uh, the nature of achievement through the optic of policy. Uh, no. Michal Martin has made Michal Martin Taoiseach. And we all said at the beginning that Michal Martin was going to be the first leader of Fianna Fáil never to be Taoiseach. And then after a while we said, you know what, maybe we'll change that. Michal is going to be the last man in Fianna Fáil ever to be Taoiseach. And I think that is maybe the suspicion that some of these people have. Michal knows that whatever happens from now on, when when the Wikipedia is written in the future, Michal Martin will be listed as a former Taoiseach. That's really all that matters. I wonder if he's enjoying it. Why is Taoiseach, for God's sake? Why wouldn't he be? He's a little king. Yeah, but that kind of assumes he doesn't care about how anything is going. He's not going... Great, Michael. No, it's not going great. But on the other hand, he has been offered both an opportunity to shine or to make a bollocks of it, certainly, which is the pandemic. But it is the absolute excuse for everything, isn't it? You don't have to worry about the, let's face it, certainly in the short term, inflation, debt, unemployment, the economy, foreign investment, rates of entrepreneurship in the domestic economy, relationships with it with the North. All this, nothing, none of this really is an issue. It's the pandemic. Whatever happens that goes wrong, it's the pandemic. Whatever happens that goes right, we did that even in the pandemic. He has the, you know, it's the, it is the perfect political condom. The problem is, we hope the pandemic will end, Gary. And then, then the crows will come home to roost. Yeah, I mean, on the plus side, he's got the plague, but if he leaves soon, he won't have to be here for the reign of fire or when the rivers turn to blood. Well, yeah, <laughs> he may be swept away with the frogs. Wait, this is true, this is true. But anyway, it is interesting to see Bertie, as we say, on manoeuvres, and we should pay close attention. Uh, I wonder, does Bertie have a... We'll have to check out 
his 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 social media presence or if he has an online blog or something that, where he has a, a calendar we should definitely have to make pay more attention in, in the next little while to see what Bertie is up to is he actually on maneuvers though or does he just enjoy fucking with martin bertie hearn never stopped being on maneuvers bertie hearn is he's a political shark and i mean that not in the sense like jaws and great white but rather, you know that, I don't know if it's one of those myths, but you know that they always say that the shark, because of the way that it it, uh, it, it it takes in oxygen, it has to constantly move. The shark stops, it dies. Bertie is like that. He just is politics. He has to be doing politics. I've, I've said to you before, I might have mentioned it before, I can remember a friend of mine remarking just with wide-eyed wonderment. after It was the Sunday... The first Sunday after the results of come uh, the two thousand and two general election, when Bertie had won a a, 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 a a big victory, it was the second, I think. Well, I mean, it was two thousand seven when it was a, was a surprise. Anyway, she was preparing his Sunday lunch, and uh, she lives in Drumcondra. The doorbell rings, and there in front of her is the bowl Bertie with a with, with give no leaflets saying, "I'm your local TD, and this is your. If you need anything, you can call me. This is." When I have my clinic, so on. The man was Taoiseach. He just won an election and won well. And he was canvassing by himself. That's Bertie Hearn. That's also one of the reasons why he managed to become a, a nobody in the same constituency as George Colley, who was one of the big, big beasts of Fianna Fáil. And he gradually, you know, like those, you know, those horrible beasts you see on nature programs that get inside a much bigger animal and then eat it from the inside out. That's what Bertie and the Drumcondra Mafia did to poor old George Colley's base. I don't think Bertie ever stops being on manoeuvres. It's just that maybe the manoeuvres have become bigger and more interesting. Well, thank you for the image of uh, Bertie Hearn hollowing out Michal Martin and wearing him like a suit. <laughs> I'm sure it's an image that Bertie would enjoy uh, <laughs> himself anyway. Uh, and maybe he get, uh, he might get Leo, uh, he might get Copeland to do it from. Uh, Times are tough in the tendering industry these days. Yeah, I saw. It was in the Independent saying something like a ninety percent fall in business. I never had much truck with Copeland as a tailor, though. So the AstraZeneca vaccine, not the actual vaccine itself, so much as the the thing around it. So there's been a lot of chatter about this uh, in the last while, coming primarily from Europe and then the German government about what's going on with AstraZeneca. So I just wanted to quickly run through it because I've seen a lot of people talking about it, but not a lot of people actually explaining the background to it. So the AstraZeneca vaccine, Europe started negotiating a deal with that uh, sometime around June last year, or more exactly, the Inclusive Vaccine Alliance started negotiating. Yes. Uh, around it in about June of last year. Now, the Inclusive Vaccine Alliance was made up of EU member states, uh, four of them, I think. It was Germany, France, Netherlands, and Italy. Basically, it decided to move ahead and do some of the initial negotiations. Yeah. They were talking to AstraZeneca about the vaccine in June. Then the EU got involved. It took another two months to get the actual deal done, which left us, I think... Three months behind the UK in signing off on the AstraZeneca vaccine, on, on putting through the order first. So the interesting thing there is, from what we've heard, or from what I suspect AstraZeneca is briefing people on, 
is that in the months of delay that happened, there were no material changes to the deal. But what ended up happening is that... uh, Now, I'm not sure if they were asked to do this or they decided to do this, but select particular European manufacturers to partner with them to produce these vaccines. Yeah. In the case that's of interest to us, they partnered with a company called Novacep. Now, Novacep is based in Belgium. It's a... Sorry, Belgium, even. Yep. But it it is actually headquartered in Lyon, in France. So you may remember from the Sanofi issue that France was busy throwing around its way to make sure that French producers got the lion's share of it. Yeah, we get, we bought 300 million doses of Sanofi. The best news about Sanofi recently is that they've partnered with Pfizer to produce Pfizer's vaccine. It <laughs> probably gives you an idea of how well that's going. So they go in with Novacep. They announce the deal, say, you know, Novacep is a proud company, blah, blah, blah. It'll be producing uh, these vaccines. So they're producing them in multiple parts of the world now, but Novacep is the interesting point to us. Come forward to uh, last week. AstraZeneca say that there's not going to be a delay in their deliveries to Europe, but there is going to be a restriction on the quantity that will come to Europe in the short term. Europe goes kind of mental about this, but what AstraZeneca says is that Novacep are only producing about a third of what they told us they would be able to produce. Yes. So on that basis, we do not have the numbers of vaccines to actually supply what you would like. So the EU starts saying that this is a gross breach of contract. They start demanding AstraZeneca reveal to it Every country it has exported vaccines to around the world, it sort they sort of imply that AstraZeneca took the vaccines that were to be given to Europe and exported them to other countries. Seems to be the underlying sort of implication here. And then they start talking about um, they will use every legal means at their disposal to ensure delivery. MEPs start making comments kind of sound like they're blackmailing AstraZeneca with the threat of regulatory issues. Yeah. If they don't get back on board. AstraZeneca's CEO comes out and says, like, we're not the bad guys here. Like, we we did what you wanted. Like, we went in with Novacep. Novacep fucked up. We're trying to do everything we can to get you as many vaccines as possible. This is what you wanted to happen. And he also points out that they had, I think he said they had three extra months with the UK because of how early the UK had signed contracts to work out issues with the supply chain and to make sure everything was working effectively. Because Europe took so long to actually sign off on it, they didn't have that. Yeah, I saw people people responded to that by saying, oh, well, for that's just absurd. They knew that the EU was going to be going ahead and buying it. So th- that's just nonsense. Which is one of the most ridiculous things you can imagine. A company is going to say, oh, well, they're going to buy 300 million from us, 300 million doses, or maybe 500 million. So we'll go ahead and, and take it as red. Nobody in their right minds is going to do that until you have the ink on the paper. You're not going to go ahead and do it. You're not going to, you're not going to sign up, particularly when you're going to have to pay for it. You're, you're not going to sign up for production that isn't guaranteed, that you're not going to be guaranteed to sell. No, and I have heard some people say that the EU put money towards the development of production facilities for AstraZeneca, and it's being presented... Now, I've no idea if that's true or not, but if it is true, I'd be interested to see if they gave it to AstraZeneca or if they gave it to Novacep, and effectively this was a subsidy to a French company. 
Well, I know that AstraZeneca, well, remember, we, we keep talking about AstraZeneca, it's Oxford AstraZeneca, because this was done in conjunction with the University of Oxford. And I know that because of their commitment to you, their commitment that this is not going to be done on a, a for-profit basis until the pandemic is basically under control and over, that they did get funding both from the EU, but certainly... I'm saying they did from the EU. I think they did. But certainly they got substantial money from the United Kingdom. No, there is actually an interesting point there on the not-for-profit thing. There's an allegations now that Astra, that South Africa is paying more than double the price the EU is for the vaccine, the Oxford vaccine. There are also accusations going around that this that the, the United Kingdom paid substantially more. And now, we should put this in the context. A little, some while ago... The EU was trumpeting the fact as a very good thing that the EU was paying less for vaccines than other people. It's now using it as an accusation. We should say that AstraZeneca deny that there is anything but a fractional difference in cost to different countries based on changing exchange rates and conditions in the market at the time, but that they're actually, that the, the price, this is not being dictated on the basis of price paid at all. The interesting thing I, I found about that situation, the EU has come under, they initially came under a lot of criticism for their errors in vaccine production, stuff like the Sanofi, the Germans coming out and saying that the French had pushed for uh, vaccines that were linked to France to be prioritised over vaccines that were actually likely to produce positive results. Then they started going on the attack themselves. The EU Commission seems to be pushing out the line that we did everything right. It's the countries that can't do it. So then you get to AstraZeneca. And I think they've taken the same line there of just go on the attack. It's not our fault. It's everyone else's fault. But two things about this are interesting. One is they're calling on AstraZeneca to release every country, and Oxford, to release every country they've exported vaccines to. Now that is a level of transparency that is interesting to note because the European Ombudsman is currently probing the EU Commission's failure to disclose uh, COVID-19 vaccine contracts. So only one of the contracts they've actually uh, signed off on has been fully disclosed. And I say fully, it's heavily redacted. So they're not released. I don't think the EU has even formally released the price it's paying for anything. Now, we know the price they're paying for most vaccines because it, it, of course, leaked. I think the price they're paying for AstraZeneca is, I think it's €2.16 a dose. But the interesting thing here is the EU has been, uh, the European Commission and MEPs have been throwing around that they are going to, you know, they're going to make this a legal issue for AstraZeneca. I had a look at the contract that has been released, which is the CureVac contract, mm -hmm. the Advanced Purchase Agreement. And the AstraZeneca one was the first one they signed, I, I think. But I would imagine this would be roughly similar to it, and that they're all roughly uh, similar. Now, that may be miles off, but it's the only piece of information we have. So, you know, we work knowing the limitations of it. If the AstraZeneca vaccine contract is similar to the CureVac uh, vaccine contract, there's absolutely no way the EU Commission can legally force them to do anything. Because the language in these contracts, and it makes sense because this was, you're talking about a massive distribution for drugs that weren't signed off on, weren't fully developed, mm -hmm. that no one was quite sure what was going to happen in the future. So the language in it is, 
you know, these are estimates. We've attempted to ensure they're accurate estimates. We will use, you know, good faith when dealing with you. But there are many notes that, you know, the quantities are estimates. The delivery dates are estimates. There may be delays. And there is there is so much stuff here that if this actually goes to court, I would just see AstraZeneca going, well, no, there's nothing, there's no issue here at all. Now, I will link the CureVac uh, contractual agreement in the podcast, not because I imagine most of you will be terribly interested in it, but because it's an absolute nightmare to find, and I would just like a single place where I know it is for my own convenience. Yes. So that's all happening there. Then the recent thing, is the German briefing against the vaccine. So what what has been described as a senior German uh, official involved in government come, is the source for two stories which say that the AstraZeneca vaccine is only, only has about an 8% efficiency in over 70s. Yeah. Now, that is pretty totally at odds with the data that AstraZeneca has released so far. However, the AstraZeneca data was a bit messy and there weren't that many older people in it. So it came out and I saw it and I went, okay, maybe that would be a massive drop. That's a spectacular issue, but maybe there's some truth to it. Then people start asking around and the Germans, when the German health department is contacted, they start trying to backpedal and they say, well, we think the reporters got mixed up. That um, you know, maybe there's eight percent of people over sixty-five in the trials. That's not a mistake I can see a reporter making. Not a serious reporter. Yeah. Not unless someone presented information to you in a way designed to make you make that mistake. So the German Ministry of Health is saying we did not say that. AstraZeneca has come out and said it's absolutely ridiculous. Interestingly enough, the authors of the original stories are standing over it and saying they went back to their source. And he's saying, no, he didn't misread the data. And it is only about 8%. Um, the efficiency rate is only about 8% on uh, over 70s. Yeah. So this seems like a bit of a mess, to be honest. It's, I think it's a character that's it's a bit more than a mess. The the only evidence that anybody can look at that's, that's shall I say, in, the, in, in public is the, is the peer-reviewed article that was published in The Lancet, which had access to all of the data from the various trials. And it indicated that there was, I know, okay, we're going to first, first one jab, two jabs, but that there was there was significant antibody reaction development in 100% of cases in older patients in, in the trials. Now, if, if, the, if somebody in the, in the ministry in Germany or somewhere in German the government is playing politics with this. This is more than irresponsible. That by putting out in the middle of a pandemic information which is make which makes people who are very vulnerable to this disease feel that the vaccine they're getting is basically useless and uh, and frightening them about you know they're being given a vaccine but it, they're going to still go that but it's going to they're still going to be enormously at risk. That's a little bit more than a balls up. That's the incredibly irresponsible way to behave. And right now, I, I think you could say that it is at least one reasonable way you could read this story. May not be what turns out to be the case. But right now, I don't think you'd have to be terribly cynical to say it looks like someone's fucking around with pol the politics of this because they're pissed off with AstraZeneca. And there isn't, and what's happening in the commission and 
the EU generally uh, uh, trying to shell to make AstraZeneca out to be the bad guys in this because they're very aware that across Europe, maybe not so much in Ireland, but certainly in many countries in Europe, there's deep pissed offness about the, ro- the, the the procurement and the rollout of the vaccine. So you have you have two media sources on this in Germany, and this is interesting because it sounds like they came from different sources. So you have Handelsblatt, which is saying that there's only an 8% efficiency rate on the elderly. Then you also have um, the Bild, which is a German tabloid, but a massive tabloid. Now, Bild is saying that uh, coalition sources are telling them they're afraid AstraZeneca won't even be approved by the European Medical Association for use in those over 65. So slightly different stories coming from what sound like two different sources, both connected to the German government, and both of which present no evidence for that to be the case. But I think to remember here is Germany has been coming under quite a lot of pressure internally about this. So... It was um, Der Spiegel who did a lot of the initial reporting on problems with the European vaccine allocation program and the vaccine procurement program fed by sources in the German government. Mm -hmm. In those articles, they pointed out that the German government is coming under immense uh, pressure about the slow pace of vaccination. And there is a growing sense of frustration in the country about that. So you have a country where the government is coming under more and more political pressure about both the procurement of vaccines and then how fast vaccines are being applied on the ground. Then the AstraZeneca news comes out and the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine was a major component of many countries' uh, COVID-19 plans. That comes out. That also looks terrible for the German government because they were involved in the procurement talks. They allowed the EU to take over after the Inclusive Vaccine Alliance did the initial work. That could be a big political problem for them. And then immediately... You have two other German media sources which are getting briefed that the vaccine effectively doesn't work for those above 65, 70, which is, which may be true. Absolutely could be true. We don't have enough data to say if it's not true. Yeah. But what we do know is that's very politically convenient, like very politically convenient. Because if the vaccine doesn't work and there's a delay, well, then it doesn't matter. But also, if the vaccine doesn't work in those over 65, then Europe's slower more measured some would say pace michael and you know the ema taking more time with things was in fact the right solution and it doesn't matter if britain has you know vaccinated five times more of its population than the eu average because you know they rushed and they used a vaccine that didn't work and this would just clear a lot of political problems right off the table. Oh, it would make things. Look, we were we we was right all the time. Look, the Brits have gone up and they have put their population at, uh, at, of these vulnerable elderly people at incredible risk because they're using this basically useless vaccine. Yeah, that would definitely be politically. But right now, if you look, if you, I mean, we're neither of us virologists, or we don't. We're not sense. All we can do is read. And we both are reading a lot about this as what's available online. And I, what the, the, the line I keep reading is nobody in the business, shall we say, is aware of any data or data sets or information that would suggest anything like this 8% figure to be true. Nobody knows where it comes from. Nobody knows where, where, it, where it appeared from and can understand on what basis they would produce it. 
there does just in the data that's available, the EMA will have all the information as well, obviously, because they, they're they're just there in the process of approving it. But the, this eight percent figure just appears to have come out of nowhere. But it would be were it to be true, it would be enormously. But what if it's not true, Gary? Percy, that's the thing. If it's not true, and let's say separate German political sources briefed that it was true based on either personal misunderstandings of the data or explicitly took something and made it useful to them while knowing that it wasn't particularly accurate, that would seem um, pretty destructive to public trust in vaccination programs. Because politicizing the viruses or the vaccines in this way seems, um, should we say, short-sighted. It seems like a kind of a, almost a panicky move of somebody thought, oh, so, like someone who maybe thinks they're drowning and they grabbed onto something that was passing by thinking it was a log and they may be about to discover that it was a shark that's going to bite their hand off. We shall see. We shall see. But uh, it's... Um... And now the AstraZeneca, um, the AstraZeneca CEO has come out and given a... Um, he, it's a Republica, which is an Italian publication. And he's gone out and given a full-length interview about the vaccination program to Republica. And in that, comes out and says, well, the EU ordered it three months late. And is not aggressive, but the EU doesn't come out of it looking well. Now, as if the EMA comes back and actually says, you know, these guys were right, the vaccine does not work in these age cohorts. Well, then that'll be one thing. But if it comes out and says it does, and now they have... This article out there from the head of a very of a pharmaceutical company basically saying the EU screwed the pooch on this. And now they're getting, uh, I believe the phrase is emotional <laughs> and uh, trying to assign blame. That's, uh, that's not a great look. It isn't. And you've taken what could have been a private conversation where you could have privately tried to apply pressure to AstraZeneca into now a public relations issue. By the way, just if anybody's interested, I think there's a little piece of good news. Uh, well, good news, it's interesting news. AstraZeneca has gone, has just has announced that it's going into partnership with the Serum Institute of India. And for those who are not regularly updated in their, their journals, about that, that's the world's largest vaccine manufacturer. And that's going to be their base, I'd say, for both the supply of the vaccine to India, but also to to low and middle in- income countries, because they uh, they're going to be producing at fairly low at fairly low cost there. And that's gone ahead, and they're going to start to be producing lots more vaccine out there. There are, as we speak now, eleven eleven uh, approved vaccines. There's another twenty in phase three. I don't know if you saw, Gary. It was trailed today that. Uh, we've been talking about it before. Johnson and Johnson have announced that they're going to be submitting their data in the next week or so. I think so. It'll be interesting to see how quickly the EMA, because I mean, to reiterate, people we're not talking about the EMA jumping necessary steps. As Johnson Johnson, like all of those, will have been constantly giving the various uh, the various trials and all the ver- the data associated with those on a rolling basis to the EMA. So none of this will be new. It's a question of what, the question that's being asked in some places is if, the, if these EMA is still a little bit stuck in unnecessary bureaucracy. And also if they're just, if they're working quite as quickly as they could be. Now, maybe that's completely unfair. Maybe these lads are working 24 hours a day, seven days a week to get this job done. And I, 
do you know what? I, I, I'd like to think that that's probably what they are doing. But anyway, for the Irish population, the interest, the important thing is that Johnson & Johnson, the EU have a contract for 200 million doses with Johnson & Johnson with an option to go and get 200 million more. Johnson & Johnson have said that they're happy that they are going to be able, this is the context of the AstraZeneca thing that's going on at the moment, they decided to include in their press release that they were confident that they would be able to meet uh, all of the uh, contractual obligations they have agreed to to supply vaccines. Now, the thing about the Johnson Johnson one is uh, we get 1.1%, I think is it, Gary, 1.1% of all vaccines under the deal. Mm -hmm. So that would mean that we would get 2.2 million doses. Uh, isn't that that's right? 1% 1, 1 of 200 million is 2. Yeah, so 2.2 .2 million doses. Now, the big thing about the Johnson Johnson is it's a single dose. So also, it's easy, I think it can be kept in the fridge. It's an easy thing to it's an easy thing to keep. So if we have substantial amounts of this, and if they can approve this in reasonable rapidity, hopefully, hopefully this will mean that we will be able to not just maintain the speed because Gary and we both looked at the numbers. We we can't make, maintaining our current rate of vaccination is far beyond acceptable. We have to be getting quicker and quicker and ramping it up. No, we can't do that unless we have actual vaccines, of course. But 2.2 million, I mean, that's that would be, I mean, obviously we're not going to get all of that bang in one go. We wouldn't want to because we wouldn't be able to give it. But there would be hope that we, we would get a substantial amount of that in the first in the first and second quarter of, of, of this year. And if that was the case, well, then that would hopefully bring us back on track. Well, I am, I am interested there. You were talking about contractual obligations. And there was a particular line in the interview with the CEO of AstraZeneca I thought was quite interesting because they were asked about their contractual obligations to the EU. And I said, we don't know what's in the other contracts that were signed. We actually don't know what's in this contract. But assuming they're all broadly similar, but this is could be of relevance. But he was asked about the, the commitments they had made to Europe. And he said, we didn't commit with the EU. It's not a commitment we have to Europe. It's a best effort. We said we are going to make our best effort. So our contract is not a contractual commitment. It's a best effort. Basically, we said we're going to try our best, but we can't guarantee we're going to succeed. Yeah, so everybody's talking about this as if this was a well. Everybody who is criticising AstraZeneca, shall we say, and not to be cynical, but you wonder where that's coming from, has, is saying, "Oh, this is just nonsense." They, they're just trying to deflect because they failed. They have committed to do this. They have a contract. They have to do it. If they don't do it, let's sue them. As you say, Gary, the con the, the, the contractual obligation was to basically to do their best. Yeah, I mean, I've gone through the CureVac vaccine in a fair bit of detail. Um, it's not that long. It's only about 60 pages long. And as a contract, it's it's very easy to kind of break down to the sections that are applicable. And there's there's it, this, this is very clear. And assuming that they have the same sort of contract, it's very clear that there are a ton of ways they'll get through this if they can just say we tried and it didn't work. Also, we, we don't know, and we should absolutely say we don't know, what exactly the conditions regarding the use of European manufacturers were. No, and that will be particularly interesting because if it turns out that this also happened because of pressure from the member states to involve someone that was uh, you know, of national interest, shall we say, 
that would if that if they did it once and caused the Sanofi issue and then did it again and could then be blamed for the delays in the AstraZeneca supply, that would be a spectacular series of fuck ups. If it were to come out, and we don't know, we have really no we will see. I mean <laughs> the EU's demanding transparency from AstraZeneca, which is really it as it is to laugh. I mean the EU demanding I, I did like it. We we need transparency so that we can tell you know why you haven't uh, why you haven't fulfilled this contract, and then people go, "Can we see the contract?" and they say, "No." But if it did transpire that AstraZeneca had options to source this material or to this production somewhere else, that they were more confident in its capacity to to meet the targets, but ended up coming uh, back and having to do it in the, the place that they went to, but that would be also very very interesting indeed. We shall see, because we don't know, we, 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 and we can't know until all these documents are released, and who knows if and when that will be. Now, I mean, I know from the CureVac, there is a section in the contract on list of manufacturing and network partners, and if there's anything in the AstraZeneca contract on that, that could be very interesting. Now, if it was the sort of thing where they were expected to pick particular manufacturers in particular countries that's obviously not going to be in the contract yeah i mean we don't know if this was done under coffee over coffee you know listen lads you know what or done at all it may be that astrazeneca legitimately just thought these were the best people went with them and this is a complicated procedure i did find quite interesting that in the curevac vaccine um contractual agreement with the eu there are three pages of manufacturing partners Every single one of them is redacted. Even the headings of the table they are in oh. is redacted. All three headings are redacted as well. So, you know, transparency. While we're, we're on the subject of slightly different ones, so, uh, loyalty and solidarity of the EU, um, as we know, some countries have been slightly less than solar- standing in solidarity. The Danes, the the Germans, the Cypriots, the Hungarians, others going off and doing deals. The Germans, this is not a vaccine story so much, but it's a, but a med, a med, it's a treatment. They are going to be, Germany's going to be the first European nation to use monoclonal antibody therapies. There you go. Do you remember when Donald Trump got the COVID? And he used a, a, a mono, this monoclonal antibody therapy. It's a bit like... To my my simple layman mind, it sounds a bit like you're. It's a kind of a a passive vaccination to somebody who already has the disease. So that if you give it to somebody in the early stages of of of, of the virus, that it um it mitigates the chances that the of the disease becoming serious. Anyway, Regeneron and what's the other one? Lily. Lily, Ali, Ali, Lily, something like that. Lily comes into it anyway, and Regeneron is the other one. Anyway. They have bought 200,000 uh, doses of this for 486 million euro, which is 2,000 euros a dose, Gary, which is not, yeah, it's not bad work if you can get it, is it? The thing about it is it hasn't actually been approved for use as of yet by the EMA, and yet the Germans have gone, Eli Lilly, that's who it was, Eli Lilly is the other one, and they have... Bam Lam Ivab and <laughs> the names of these drugs are fantastic. Uh, Regeneron's is Kazirivimab or 
imdevimab antibody cocktail or the ilalilisis bamlan ivab antibody drug. I don't know why that amuses me, but it does. Anyway, the Germans have gone off their own uh, bat and decided they're going to do this anyway without the approval of the EMA. It's amazing, Gary, the way when it comes to your own citizens living or dying, that some of these countries, like Germany, for example, decide that they're not going to wait to get the imprimatur from Brussels or Strasbourg before they go ahead and do it. Isn't it odd the way they do that? They should look to Ireland and le learn a lesson from us, that you stand patiently, suffer in silence and wait. I mean, I'm not someone who's rabidly against the EU. I actually don't really have a problem with the EU at all. In fact, many parts of it are quite good. But this, I don't... I don't really get the whole... The people who really believe in European solidarity, oftentimes I find quite confusing. Like Neil Richmond. When Neil Richmond talks about the EU, I oftentimes just do not get it at all. Because he talks about things, and you're like, Neil, but none of that's real. Yeah. None of those are actual things. None of that is, is, is important. I, I, I'm not... And I'm neither one thing nor the other. I, I, if I had been English... Would I have voted for Brexit? I don't know. I know I was, as an Irishman, I wanted the English not to vote for Brexit because I think I, Europe is much more problematic for us without Britain. And there are other just in, in island issues, of our own trade issues. That it, it, it's, it's a big problem for us. Brexit is an issue for us. But after that, I, I, I just think that whatever we might think about sovereignty and issues like that, Ireland has to be in the, we are in the EU. I think the euro is a nightmare. And that's the, ultimately the problem. The euro is a really bad idea. And if we could take that out, everything would be much better. But my problem with, you talk about, you, you say that it's not real. Do you, it, there is almost a kind of a, I don't know, ideological, religious element to the way they talk about it. It reminds me at times, you know, when you meet those really dedicated Marxists and they keep explaining to you why that country and that country and that didn't work because it wasn't real Marxism. And we have to keep keep pushing through. And again and again with the Europeans, yeah, it's it's not because Europe has failed. It's because we haven't got enough of Europe. We need more and more to keep going forward. We need more. We need to get more. We need to be a federation. It needs to be. Particularly in relation to this issue, because health isn't even a European. No, it's not. Uh, competency. No. So now there's this sort of, oh, well, we have to go in Europe because it was the only way to do it. And you sort of look at how that's going and they make the point that, you know, if we didn't go in Europe, there would have been all the European countries would have just torn themselves apart trying to get this. But then you see things like the Inclusive Vaccine Alliance where European countries came together outside of the EU because I would suspect they realised that giving the EU Commission the ability to do this was not going to lead to a great outcome. And surely something like that could have happened. In which case, there would have been European solidarity. It just wouldn't have been in the EU. As it's worth remembering, one of the reasons, the, the reason why the Netherlands, Germany, France initially decided to go and buy the 400 million doses the first time was because they were deeply unhappy. At, this is the, they, they did this at the level of the health ministries in those countries. They were very unhappy and worried about the, the pace at which procurement was going on at a European level or rather discussion about going to the point of doing it. So they just say, okay, listen, it's, there's, it's, I think it's reasonable to believe that if they had not actually done that, the EU's procurement process could have taken longer. It was only because they did this, which pro pro provoked a very 
negative response from the from 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 the commission, uh, which meant that the various leaders in those countries informed their health ministries that they that was not the way they were going to go. That was going to be done on the basis of a European uh, central procurement agency. But they were that was spurred into existence by the actions of those four sovereign countries. If they had not acted, I, I, it, I, it, I think it's a reasonable, a reasonable question to wonder, would this have taken longer? Would it, would it have been not November, but December? or when, when would they have actually got into action? I can't see how you could argue that they would have been, they would have done it more quickly. So it has not been, it has not been an advertisement for giving over more power uh, over life or death issues to the uh, Commission and the European bureaucracy for their efficiency and uh, capacity to deliver to the people of Europe. Another uplifting message. Yes, well, we're all about the uplifting. So we will be back on uh, Friday, the 29th. Until then, enjoy the fall of the Italian government. <laughs> Until then, bye-bye. <laughs>